0: Hello, I'm Ian Drake, and this is the New Books and Law podcast on New Books Network. Today, we are joined by Colleen Murphy. She is a professor of law, philosophy, and political science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is the author of A Moral Theory of Political Reconciliation from Cambridge University Press in 2010, as well as the co-editor of Engineering Ethics for a Globalized World in 2015, among other works. But today we are being joined in order to discuss the conceptual foundations of transnational uh, transitional justice. It is published by Cambridge University Press this year, twenty seventeen. Colleen, uh, welcome to New Books in Law podcast.
1: Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, this is a um, book that it's a title that sounds like a very academic title, uh, transitional justice. Um, can you explain uh, how? To best understand transitional justice, I know you have a particular uh, qualification to the definition uh, that may be somewhat unique to your approach. But uh, I want to make sure that our listeners understand what is the uh, phenomenon or concept behind it.
1: Great. So, transitional justice um, is a term that use that's used to refer to contexts where there has been extended periods of civil conflict or civil war, or a form of repressive rule, and in which there have been um, numerous human rights abuses that have been committed. And so transitional justice refers to the question or the issue of dealing with wrongdoing in the context of trying to move away from extended periods of conflict or repression.
0: And once they move away from it, they meaning, of course, the the state, the society as a whole, some kind of change has occurred politically, right?
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. So you're dealing with moments. You can think of South Africa in 1994 when it transitioned from the system of racial segregation and discrimination that was constitutive of apartheid to democracy. Um, so there's a moment to shift an aspiration to following the fall of a dictator, following the signing of a peace accord, move to a new period as a society. And then there's a question of how you deal with wrongs from the past as you're moving forward.
0: And so on, in one sense, you could say, well, this, this will obviously apply to something where there's been a civil war perhaps or a revolution. But then again, it could also apply to, um, changes in legal norms, um, in, in, in not necessarily a wholesale revolution of uh, the state, right? In other words, this could apply in much more narrow context.
1: You know, so that's one question where there's ongoing disagreement. So I would think of, depending on how extensive the shift in legal, legal norms is that you're talking about, um, you could have cases that approach what I take to be the paradigm case of, of transition. Um, but typically there's a change in government or a change in the structure for elections or a commitment to include parties that weren't previously, um, included as full and equal participants in a political system.
0: So for example, um, this is not one example that, uh, I recall from the book, but I, what about say, um, changes in, uh, legal inclusion, uh, from 1964 and 1965 the voting rights act and civil rights act in the US would that be something that would fit within this
1: so i think it's it's a, a borderline case i think when you're thinking of the united states a paradigm case of transition for us occurred in the aftermath of the civil war so there we were dealing with questions of how uh, the paradigm question of transitional justice how do you deal with atrocities that were committed during the civil war Um, As we face the task of repairing relations that have been damaged and structuring a society that's predicated on the abolition of slavery nationwide. I think in the civil rights movement, you were dealing with a case that's very close to um, paradigm cases of of transitional justice because you really were concerned with broad fundamental shifts in the legal order in the rights that were recognized and respected in practice, and how to deal with um, wrongs that were the kinds of wrongs that I take up in my book, like the wrongs stemming from lynching, where you had, as a matter of fact, for Black Americans during the Jim Crow era, um, a concern about the possibility of being lynched if you failed to abide by either social norms or conventions um, or tried to protest treatment that you were granted or given.
0: So, the end product after transitional justice has occurred is what kind of state?
1: Great. So, in my view, it's a democratic state. Um, So, I take democracy to be a key component. And that's because I think of the main aim of transitional justice, the orienting aim, is trying to get societal transformation, where what you're trying to change at the end of the day is the relationships among citizens, and between citizens and officials, so that relationships are truly relationships among equals. So one reason why I think democracy matters is democracy is a form of government predicated on everyone having an equal right to have a say in who will be the political officials passing the rules that shape interaction in a political community. So I think that's a necessary part, but I don't think that's all of, um, you know, having elections. I don't think that's sufficient or all you need for the kind of transformation that I'm interested in. That I think processes of transitional justice help contribute to bringing about. Um, I also talk a lot about the importance of the rule of law, where um, a central way in which the rule of law breaks down characteristically during either conflict or during repression, is that there's a gap that opens up between what rules say on the books, so to speak, and what official practice looks like in fact, Um, so that you might have legal rights that may be technically granted, but aren't actually respected in practice. You might have certain injunctions or restrictions on the way the police can interact with citizens that don't actually map onto or reflect um, the way in in practice police interact with citizens, either all citizens or a group of citizens. Um, I also talk about transformation as requiring setting in place genuine opportunities for all citizens to avoid poverty to be able to participate in economic and political institutions, to be recognized as equal members of a community and respected. And finally, I talk about the importance of trust, of being able to view as a default, your fellow citizens and officials as competent, able to discharge their responsibilities, and as lacking ill will towards you, not out to harm you, not out to take advantage or exploit you, And um, that sort of default attitude can be deeply respectful when it's reasonable, but often in transitions, establishing conditions for trust to be reasonable is a profoundly hard um, challenge to overcome.
0: So in understanding the transition from point A to point Z, it seems to me that there are and this is a crude way of saying it, but there are a lot of boxes to check in order to say that you've achieved some kind of transition. And it's really a transition to a modern liberal democratic state, right? Okay. So in thinking about this in, in terms of actual application, it seems to me that probably, and I'll just, this is a ballpark figure. I would say probably about 70 plus percent of the world falls into the yet to be transitional state. Do you think that's uh, an accurate assessment? because by your standards, in which in other words, this is a high bar to set.
1: Mm-hmm. Now that's is that just, right. That, that's right. So I think all of the things that I laid out, so so one point to recognize is fully realizing um, the, the different characteristics that I just mentioned, the rule of law, um, default levels of reasonable trust, threshold levels of opportunities to avoid poverty and be respected in these ways, um, remain ongoing challenges and objectives, I'd argue, for almost every society globally. So I think one, one way we can um, make distinctions among cases is by talking about, on, on the one hand, there's sort of a ceiling, an aspiration or an aim doing things even better than you are or you have been in the past. So getting even more robust um, rule of law regulations um, required in practice. But then uh, there'll also be a floor. So I think um, part of what I'm um, aiming for, what many societies in transition are aiming for, is passing a sort of threshold level of achievement when it comes to the rule of law, when it comes to um, steps to alleviate poverty, um, when it comes to achieving participatory opportunities for all citizens to engage in politics or be part of the economy. So I think um, in transitions, what you're often dealing with is meeting or surpassing that threshold. Um, And often that requires looking at... um, conditions that need to be in place for the threshold to be feasible or possible. So for example, um, in the view of the rule of law that I lay out, what you're aiming for is a certain kind of reciprocal relationship between citizens and officials where citizens on the one hand are willing to abide by legal rules and norms. Um, and, and, you know, take those as governing how what their conduct ought to look like. And officials, for their part, are passing rules that are public, that are non-contradictory. They're abiding by whatever rules that they pass. Um, but to get that kind of reciprocal willingness going, you often need a minimum level of trust. Because if citizens don't trust political or government officials or the police or security forces, they're going to be less willing to constrain themselves in the ways that legal rules require. And officials, for their part, if they don't trust citizens that they're able and willing to abide by um, guidelines that laws may lay out, then they may in turn be less willing to do what they need to do so that rules are accessible to citizens or constrain their conduct. So I think in, in the cases that I'm interested in, Colombia right now, as it's trying to navigate an ending to the 52 years of conflict there, South Africa transitioning from apartheid, um, when you look at Egypt following the reign of Hosni Mubarak, um, Syria when its civil war ends there, there'll be questions of transitional justice that are, will arise in that context. You're, 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 you're aiming low in a sense, and that's at getting at threshold levels. Of these conditions, realizing once you surpass the threshold, you can still have a way to go by way of um, ongoing aspiration.
0: But this is more than just an academic question, obviously, as you've indicated. In other words, this is a real world concern. And one of the approaches that um, you take in the book is uh, you do reference particular case studies, but it's really not, by and large, a what we could call applied theory text. It's really an argument wherein you're trying to define transitional justice and what you mean by it by comparing it to other conceptions of justice. And so I want to briefly talk about these different types of justice. Now, normally, when you think of justice, you think of a beginning, a middle, and an end. In other words, there's a process that occurs where at the end of it, even if everyone involved, even if all the parties who feel like some action must be taken in order to achieve a just result are not entirely satisfied. At least there is a degree of satisfaction, even if it's only adherence to procedures. So... Uh, take a typical court case, whether it's criminal or civil, with which we're all familiar from popular media. You have a trial, you have due process, literally in the sense that you have a procedure, you have uh, adherence to these procedures, and you may not like what's said, you may not believe all of what's said, but at least there's been an airing, there's been an opportunity to cross examine witnesses, and then there's some kind of judgment, whether it's a jury or a judge that is rendered. And so you get some sense of finality, even if you don't like the outcome. Um, so it seems to me that that type of process where there's satisfaction that the wrongdoer has got received some type of uh, comeuppance or justice um, and um, or vindication, if in fact they were not the wrongdoer and the victim or the purported victim has, um, received at least their day in court or at least an opportunity to be heard, if not fully uh, vindicating their claims. And so at the at the end of it, you know, there's an end and um, and then you move on. But what you're suggesting is that this is a little different. And so if you could outline these different types of justice that you're comparing it to and how maybe everything's everything's not as complete and uh, it's not a it's not fitting it like a jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces neatly fitting together at the end.
1: Now that's great. And your, your example is really is really helpful for that purpose. So one of the reasons I got interested in transitional justice was because of reactions of um, citizens of, of transitional society, citizens of South Africa, citizens of Colombia right now, um, victims and alleged perpetrators in these contexts, as well as international observers. So either members of NGOs that are working in transitional contexts or ordinary readers who consume news about what's going on globally, who have reactions about whether or not justice has been done um, through the kinds of processes that tend to be adopted to deal with wrongdoing in transitions, which are not just criminal trials, the, the, the kind that you mentioned in your example dealt with, but also other sorts of things that are done. Programs of reparations for victims of wrongdoing, um, amnesty provisions where there's a decision to remove um, the possibility of being held liable criminally for certain wrongs. There are truth commissions, which are uh, officially established bodies established by a government charged with a mandate of investigating and documenting a specific set of um, human rights abuses that took place over a particular period of time. So in the case of South Africa, it had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, that was set up uh, as in its transition, and that commission was charged with looking at killing, abduction, torture, and severe ill treatment in the period of 1960 to 1994. Um, And then you finally have some different forms of memorials that are established. So, um, So citizens tend to have very different reactions and judgments to these, you might call them alternative processes. So in South Africa, as I note in the beginning of my book, there was a lot of disagreement about the establishing of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there because um, as part of its um, functioning, it included an amnesty committee that was charged with um, hearing amnesty cases of individuals who came forward, either they were part of the police or the security force or they were part of the armed wing of the African National Congress that was contesting apartheid, and individuals who came forward and said, look, I killed this person. This is where their body lay, or I tortured this person on this day and in this manner. And I did so for political reasons, um, in either in defense of the apartheid state or in contestation of, of the apartheid regime. And if they were granted amnesty, they would um, be immune from being held criminally liable for what they had done. So a lot of, of judgments that saying, you know, this was unjust to grant this amnesty Or This was a justified thing for the South African government to do. We see similar debates right now in Colombia as it's trying to establish its transitional justice processes there. And one part of which um, in the special jurisdiction for peace includes a provision whereby individuals who come forward and confess to war crimes or crimes against humanity can serve instead of prison terms. Five to eight years in these zones of um, where there's effective restrictions on liberty, and they can engage in acts of reparation. So, a lot of, of debates and disagreements about how we think about these sorts of processes is is one of the things that motivated me to write my book. And what I argue is that um, we've got to understand and think about the context in which different kinds of justice become what I call salient. So. Going back to the example that you gave with criminal trial and punishment, the core intuition that you are articulating when you said there's satisfaction that in some sense justice has been done if someone through the process that's established is found guilty and then is is punished in the form of some sort of prison sentence. um, I look at explanations or theories of what are called retributive justice that try to articulate and explain this basic intuition, this judgment that if you do wrong, you deserve to suffer and suffer in the form of punishment. And, um, you know, there's an intuition about what it means to treat perpetrators of wrongdoing justly and and fairly. And so I look at that um, intuition makes sense when you're dealing with what I'm calling, what I call... um, Individual and deviant wrongdoing, but ordinary criminality. An individual chooses to assault another individual um, who they may or may not know. They're not doing it for political reasons. They're not doing it with the permission of the state. It's not something that typically occurs. It's exceptional. It's not the rule. We can understand why justice might require that because it's a way of trying to reestablish equality between the perpetrator and his or her victim. Um, when that equality was disrupted by a criminal act of wrongdoing. Um, But part of what I looked at is why that sort of retributive intuition isn't as applicable when we're dealing with contexts of widespread wrongdoing, where you have many patterns of torture or patterns of massacres, or cases of genocide, implicating many, many individuals, They're collective and and group-based, targeting individuals on the basis of an identity, or on the basis of certain ideological commitments they hold, um, implicating many individual actors. And so part of what I look at is how we ought to think about what justice means when we're dealing with that kind of wrongdoing that's not ordinary criminality. And that's wrongdoing that's being dealt with in a very fragile and precarious context where you're trying to also establish conditions for lasting peace and for broader transformation. So you don't have repression and conflict returning. So um, that's what I take transitional justice, that puzzle to be about. And it's not exactly the puzzle of another kind of justice that we look at, which is corrective justice, where the thought is if you wrongfully impose losses on someone else through your action you ought to be responsible for cleaning up the mess so if I am negligently driving and I rear-end you with my car and we think well who ought to bear responsibility for paying um, the damage that that accident caused to a car the intuition is it ought r- responsibly lie with me who drove negligently and what I owe you let's suppose it was Ian you that I had hit with my car Um, is sort of um, wrongs that will bring you back to the situation you were before the accident, right? So whatever would cause the immediate damage caused by my action. Again, that's not going to provide much guidance when it comes to dealing with mass atrocity, because often um, there wasn't a baseline of um, standard of conduct that's defensible governing interaction between citizens or between citizens and officials. And often because you're dealing with wrongs where there's no kind of commensurate amount of money or compensation that could repair the harm caused or bring individuals back to a status quo, ante position of equality. So that's, um, hopefully that's getting at the, 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 what you were asking me to answer. If it's not, I'm happy to um, try and get at the answer to your question in a different way.
0: Well, you you talk about retributive justice, and that's what we're most familiar with in the Anglo-American judicial system in terms of criminal law. Uh, corrective is much more familiar to us in the sense of tort law, um, where you try to make the victim whole. And, of course, granted, when you lose an arm in an accident, you might think on the one hand, well, there's no amount of money going to replace that arm. And certainly you can't replace it. But nevertheless, we can compensate them with money. And, and we do it, of course, even in wrongful death, where people's lives are lost through the negligence or recklessness of others. Okay, so we're familiar with these concepts, but what you're describing is that transitional justice, in other words, achieving justice in a uh, on a societal scale. And you're not dealing with just particular individuals where there's a, one or a set of identifiable victims that are clear and distinct, uh, and then… There may also not be merely one set of uh, perpetrators um, because it occurs on a society-wide scale. Uh, But then again, at the same time, it seems to me that you are arguing that elements of retribution and elements of um, compensation or corrective action, they need to be included when there is this society-wide transition, in other words, it's not merely some abstraction that you've moved from what's called the totalitarian state to the liberal democracy and you're merely forward-looking now, but rather these, these uh, remedies that you mentioned earlier, amnesty, uh, truth commissions, reparations, memorials, all of those are actions taken on what are ostensibly a society-wide scale but they're meant to serve some of these very traditional purposes that we think of as just results, like giving wrongdoers their due and giving victims some degree of recognition and compensation, right? So in other words, this is still part of the calculus for understanding when transitional justice has in fact occurred.
1: So I think, so you're absolutely right that I, I, um, that I argue for the defensibility of using Um, things like criminal trials and programs of reparations or compensation um, as processes of transitional justice. The only way in which I, I differ from, or one way in which I differ from a retributivist or a corrective justice theorist is in how I argue we ought to understand what's going on in these cases. So I think of criminal trials and programs of reparations as tools Sort of, there's a variety of tools you could use to serve the ends of justice in transitional contexts or in ordinary contexts, right? You don't have to do criminal trials. You could respond to criminal wrongdoers in in different ways, but criminal trials has become the conventional way of doing so. But I think of um, the the purpose that's being served by um, criminal trials as different when we're we're talking about transitions, and different in two ways. One is that it has not just a, a, a purpose or point of responding to perpetrators, right, in, in, in responding to um, the wrong in which they are implicated. Um, it has this other purpose, which is in adopting this tool, there's a hope that by punishing will contribute to this broader transformation, either by communicating or expressing that conduct that was permissible in the past is no longer permissible in the future by trying to counter denial that wrongdoing took place. Cause that's often common and say, no wrongdoing happened and, um, and and we're condemning it and we're acknowledging that wrongdoing took place. And then when it comes to the perpetrator, we're also trying to do justice to him or her. So that's similar with retribution, but I don't take the measure of justice in these cases to be the measure of retribution so that we would say that the perpetrator was not treated justly if on the one hand he wasn't or she wasn't put on trial but was responded to in a different way um, either by a commission that requires him or her to come forward and just testify and testify to what he or she did without any punishment following. So I don't think that that you that punishment responding in this way is necessary. And I don't think the measure of success is whether punishment leads to in cases of guilt, some sort of proportional suffering um, proportional to the nature of the wrong that they did. I think it'll be a more complicated calculus because you have also this forward-looking aim. So So the bottom line is I agree with the retributivist that punishment can be an instrument of justice. I just have a different interpretation of what we mean by by criminal trials serving the ends of justice when you're dealing with them as a tool being used in these contexts or periods of transition. So if you think about okay, so Germany during, you know, in the aftermath of World War II and what was going on there,
0: right? That's what I was going to ask you about. Um, to take a famous example that we're all familiar with is the uh, post-war trials in both Germany and Japan. Um, We talk about the Nuremberg trials a lot, but uh, there were, of course, um, some uh, trials in Japan. And um, all of these were for uh, basically officials, public officials that were either instrumental in issuing particular, clearly defined orders. In other words, and of course, fortunately for the prosecutors, uh, these... uh, Thank goodness it was Germany they were dealing with because they were meticulous in their documentation of what everybody's doing. So there's no mystery, really. And in many ways, it's kind of a foregone conclusion factually um, that uh, and I say that I know that's a broad brush statement. But in in many ways, it's 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 pretty easy case to prove in terms of documenting who did what and who ordered what. Now, so what are some of the pitfalls uh, from that actual historical example?
1: Um, so I think one thing that's, um, so the, the Nuremberg examples are interesting for a, a number of reasons. So one is they draw attention to the fact that there's only a small range of actors um, that will ever be able to be held accountable through mechanisms like criminal trials, um, because trials are slow. And they're expensive and they take time and there's standards of due process that need and, and evidentiary standards that need to be satisfied. So while it's um, commendable and important, I don't, I don't deny the value that Nuremberg trials um, had, um, they also highlight the limits of using uh, or thinking of trials as the only tools or mechanisms for accountability when it comes to those who are implicated in wrongdoing in transitional contexts, and, and as you noted, another um, challenge in transitional context often is evidentiary nature. So you don't have records that are as well kept that can provide the sort of proof that's needed Um, In order to secure a conviction, you have um, contexts often in which ordinary citizens are deeply, deeply distrustful of criminal justice systems, worried about their own vulnerability should they come forward and testify against someone um, that can make it really challenging to get the sort of witnesses that you would need in order to get secure convictions in particular cases and um, the Nuremberg trials are also interesting for the questions they raise about who appropriately has the standing when you're dealing with criminal trials um, to be the one holding perpetrators of wrongdoing to account. So we might agree that um, it is appropriate if selections have to be made to focus on those most culpable or responsible because they were the ones who were organizing or structuring Um Mass wrongdoing that took place, um, but I think one thing you know one of the concerns that had been articulated about the Nuremberg trials was that they were mere victims ju- victor's justice, right that only one side was held to account, but not all those from all sides who had been responsible for wrongdoing. And you see worries about victims victor's justice and about bias. In the um, choices that are made when it comes to criminal trials, being echoed in contemporary context. So, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia just wrapped up its work last week, and it's widely recognized or um, concluded that those trials they they may have had many important um, value and 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 impact, but they didn't much impact the domestic context of um, Bosnia, for example. They didn't have much of an impact on um, achieving relational repair between Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims and and, and in fact led to deeper divisions as um, Serbs didn't really view the trials as legitimate, many, because they thought they were biased against Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Muslims. Dismayed at the sort of refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy of these trials on the part of Bosnian Serbs, worried about their own safety moving forward, right? It took this as evidence that the conditions that would need to be in place to prevent similar sorts of wrongdoing occurring in in the future aren't going to be contributed to by these trials. So I think um, there are many lessons that can be learned um, about what trials can do, the importance that they can have in... In the best case, convincingly expressing condemnation of what happened, holding the person who's on trial accountable in some way, contributing to the process of drawing lines between what was permitted in the past and what will be permissible moving forward. But then also all sorts of limitations they have um, and challenges they have in being successful and even doing what they're in theory able to do in these contexts of transition.
0: Now, the uh, trials bring up an interesting issue, which you refer to the Yugoslav trials, and um, you note, uh, for example, the literal geographic distance between where the court and the the procedures occur, which is in Europe, uh, versus, well, excuse me, which is in um, Northwestern Europe versus Southeastern Europe, where all the events occurred. Um, And so there's this sense that there are, uh, that nationalism is is very much a part of uh, this. And so there's a, there's still a great deal of salience for uh, nationalists and ethno-nationalistic um, uh, subdivisions within a country. Um, and I, I think that that is a good point that you make in terms of, you know, how effective really then is this process? Because on the one hand, you can say, well uh, – Notwithstanding the nationalism that encourages uh, people to view someone like uh, Karadzic as a, uh, a national hero rather than a war crimes perpetrator, um, for whom is there justice if the very society that was going or portion of society that was going to be benefited by the crimes of this person uh, still celebrates him as a uh, as a hero?
1: And I think I think you know the answer to the question of whether or not trials will be efficacious when it comes to contributing to transitional justice, they might have other objectives. So I think when we look at ad hoc tribunals like the ICTY, the the, the trials for the former Yugoslavia, there might be important contributions they made when it came to underscoring um, the commitments of um, the international community to abide by certain norms, you know, not Bosnia considered domestically. So there can be different communities that are being targeted or being communicated to by these processes, some of which may be more or less successful in reaching. Um, But when it comes to the the domestic community, the community of the society, Colombia now or Bosnia or... Um, South Africa in 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 the efficaciousness of or Rwanda post genocide mechanisms there. I think the answer to the question of whether or not trials conducted outside of the country as well as in the country will be effective as tools of 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 transitional justice, oftentimes it'll just depend. And it'll depend in part on what other transitional justice processes, are established or put in place. So, for example, if you have a robust truth commission that's working in conjunction with criminal trials, so criminal trials create a record about particular atrocities in which the defendants on trial are implicated. If you have that working in, in conjunction with an, a, a truth commission, which is trying to uncover patterns of abuse of specific kinds, specific kinds of wrongdoing, then the messages that you get from the two kinds of processes can be mutually reinforcing. So it can become harder to deny um, the, the, the evidence and the record that's being created by a criminal trial if that is resonating with the record that's being compiled by a truth commission that's uncovering the same sort of structure of authorization of wrongdoing or um, factors that contributed to wrongdoing or actors that were involved in wrongdoing. So I think um, there's a lot of social scientific work that's really important right now that's trying to identify what combinations of processes are especially effective um, together and in what kind of transition. Um, So I think that sort of knowledge is really important when it comes to, um, in an intentional way, designing transitional justice processes so that there's the maximal prospect for success in both doing something that'll help change relationships and, you know, respond to victims and, and the demands that they rightly have in virtue of what they suffered and and appropriately hold perpetrators' account to account for what they did.
0: Right. And at the end of the book, you do clearly state that one, your purposes uh, in the writing the book is to guide policymakers. And so um, w- one question I want to ask, you don't really deal with this uh, directly in the book, but I, uh, it's a question that's kind of begged by the example of the Yugoslav trials and some of the pitfalls or problems that have occurred just by virtue of having trials. Um, one of the criticisms of the court's or the uh, court-oriented approach to dictators, uh, warlords, um, commanders, is that one of the ways to help a society rid themselves of people like uh, Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic is to not have trials or the threat of putting them on trial and then putting them in prison for the rest of their lives, but rather to give them an out, a place of safe haven, like uh, was done with the Duvaliers from Haiti, where they just retire to the south of France. And that's very, on the one hand, in regard to those particular perpetrators, that's very unpalatable, really frustrating to think that they could live uh, in safety for the rest of their lives somewhere. But on the other hand, you get them out of the place where they've been reigning for decades usually uh, wreaking terror on their population, etc um, but with the with this permanent criminal court infrastructure that's been created, all of a sudden you take away that possibility uh, that's one of the criticisms that was made I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm curious what do you think of that in terms of an actual policy? Uh, approach to dealing with all different kinds of dictators and totalitarian rulers?
1: So I guess I would say two things. One is that um, I'm skeptical about the um, empirical assumption that underlies this sort of the rationale for exile as opposed to accountability, um, which is that this is th- that um, for, any sort of attempt to hold dictators um, accountable will undermine prospects for a successful transition when you think about a society trying to move beyond a period of dictatorship. So I don't think, I don't draw from the, 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 the failure um, of certain trials, the conclusion that trials necessarily must fail. Um, I think there's ways of responding to the sources of failure of, of trials, um, like th- those with the ICTY, um, that would avoid duplicating those failures in the future. So more intentionally um, thinking about the ways in which domestic pro- transitional ju- justice processes can work in um, synergistically with Criminal trials that may be happening outside of the country um, could be one um, direction to go. So, and and I also think that trials aren't the only form accountability need to take. So, if you give someone exile, you're not holding them accountable at all. They don't need to assume responsibility for what they've done. They don't have to. Um, indeed, can continue to deny that they were responsible for any sort of atrocities that may have happened during the period over which they reigned. Um, and and and. So, I think that that you can't that trials may not be the most effective direction doesn't mean it's the only direction. And part of what I want to open up my book, the question I want to open up at the end of my book, um, is is more creative thinking about mechanisms for accountability, processes for accountability that may be, to some extent, culturally specific that would achieve um, the moral objectives for responding to perpetrators that I lay out of condemning wrongdoing in which they're implicated, holding them accountable by judging them to have been responsible for the wrongs that are at issue and ideally assume responsibility themselves for those wrongdoing. Um, so, so that's the first point. The first point, I'm, I'm skeptical that there need be a necessary tension between accountability um, of those who were dictators are highest levels in charge um, and um, the pursuit of broader transformation. And I guess the second point is perhaps um, there may be a few contexts in which trying to go down the accountability route of any kind um, really will jeopardize Prospects for transformation, right? For for ending a, peer, a, a, a tyrannical regime or a dictatorship, or ending conflict because of the way it threatens those who um, still wield power. And there, I would want to say my framework would give us resources for articulating and recognizing the moral cost that trying to achieve transformation without any backward-looking accountability brings with it. Um, that that it's not um, the morally best scenario and that you are indeed sacrificing one part of justice, the part of justice that transitional justice is concerned with that is not about broader societal transformation, but that's a, about responding fairly and appropriately to perpetrators and victims. I guess that's two things I'd say, those those two um, um responses and I think it's helpful for when I, when I talk about speaking to policymakers part of what I aim to do is give a framework for having conversations about choices that need to be made when it comes to um, transitional justice and how to think about those choices about um, to think about moral success um, in terms of being able to establish conditions where you have, possibilities for trust where it didn't exist or possibilities for strengthening the rule of law, and also at the same time are dealing with perpetrators and victims who might be subject to these processes as agents and treating them fairly and appropriately. So language for recognizing that's what we ought to be thinking about and evaluating effectiveness in terms of, and then language for recognizing when we can't do everything, um, what we do promote by way of justice and what we are leaving unaddressed that maybe need to address later or indeed sacrificing from the perspective of justice
0: do you think that knowledge of the the truth of what actually happened mm-hmm. even if it's imperfectly realized do you think that that's a key to achieving justice in other words even if you don't have compensation for the victim, or any type of accountability or retribution even through a formal process for the perpetrator, Mm -hmm. do you think that mere knowledge of the truth about what happened is important?
1: I think it's critical. Um, And I think when um, it contributes to transitional justice, when that knowledge opens up And contributes to possibilities for societal transformation. So one way that can happen is by overcoming denial. So the denial can take different forms. It can be there can and there's characteristically present lots of different denial um, in the midst of conflict and in contexts of repression, because very often not everyone is targeted and suffered, and different groups experience conflict and repression differently. So for some who may not be targeted by and may indeed benefit from um, an authoritarian regime, um, you know, things weren't that bad. Um, they didn't have to worry about being subject to certain sorts of wrongdoing. Um, they may economically have benefited from the regime that was in place. So so overcoming denial that there's a problem in the structure of interaction between citizens and between citizens and officials, denial about how bad things were in the past and why they were in that way, Um, denial about what facilitated wrongdoing. So the the scripts or excuses that want to displace um, thinking about what made atrocity possible onto the actions of a few bad apples instead of recognizing that you only get widespread Um, commission of human rights abuses when there are lots of actors complicit in or bystanders to wrongdoing that are facilitating it and making it possible that you're not just dealing with a a few bad apples but systemic problems that enable wrongdoing on a wide scale so i think you know the truth it can contribute to societal transformation in that way and it can be a way for victims Uh, when it's meaningful, depending on, you know, if it's officially recognized and, and um, officially sanctioned and in a widespread and serious way, it can constitute a form of acknowledgement for them. Again, especially in the face of denial that, that they were wronged.
0: And I was, I was thinking the less of formal processes um, where you get accountability or recognition for the victim. So I was thinking, for example, of, what happened in the 1990s in Eastern Europe, uh, for example, in in East Germany, they opened up the Stasi files, the secret police files, and you could go in and find the file. And many people, I remember reading accounts of many people who said, I didn't know my cousin used to rat me out to the police. And, uh, And they weren't saying, you know, there are no fond memories anymore. All of a sudden, these records are revealing the truth that, Uh, no truth commission was ever going to reveal because the truth commission depends upon perpetrators coming forward. Right. Uh, normally. And and so, um, this is the state's own, um, documentation about who was doing what. And by the end of that process, for those who were willing to go look at their file, um, you, you had a, a certain kind of rough truth, but, I want, on the other hand, though, was there any rough justice in that?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, not if 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 what the result was this uh, was a judging responsible a certain person. Um, you know, there's always sometimes people have worries about um, vigilante justice in the in the aftermath of, of of coming to know who was responsible for wrongdoing, and whether or not that happens, I think is going to depend in part on. Um, How institutionally a government that decides to open records and open files um, plans to handle the demands for accountability that citizens make and how it justifies whatever decision it makes in in terms of accountability. So if it frames, you know, we are coming, um, this is the, the form of accountability we recognize that we are best in a position to achieve where it may not lead to anything further as a matter of legal process. Right. Or um, it may not lead to or it may lead to individuals losing official jobs. Right. If they're part of the government and it comes out that they were implicated in wrongdoing, one form of accountability that wouldn't necessarily be prison, but could be um, a barring of individuals from serving in certain public capacities or official roles. But uh, government may say at the same time, you know, the accountability comes from having it be known um, that which you were involved in.
0: But that's and that's part of what you're concerned with, though, is, you know, merely having it known is frustrating because maybe nothing happens as a result of this to the victim or to the perpetrator. But at the same time, uh, this seems to me to be one of the unique aspects of transitional justice is. Unfortunately, it's on a societal scale. So there are practical limits to achieving.
1: So, yeah, um, no, there's, there's definitely going to be practical limits, but I also, I think there's a way in which coming to know the truth can itself be a kind of accountability that can satisfy demands for accountability um, in, in ways and, and, and satisfy demands um, and claims that victims have. So, um, to have this record o- open so that you can come to see it effect- officially recognized, even in, in the, insofar as this is official records that are open for anyone to see, um, that you were in fact wronged, right? That you might have suspected you were wronged or you may have wondered who was responsible for what happened to you. And now there can be a measure of justice for victims in knowing the truth about what happened to the who it was in fact responsible for the wrongdoing, having confidence in being able to judge, yes, I was in fact wrong. And the state is in fact acknowledging this by opening the files in a way that's condemnatory, right? That's not celebrating this part of history, but that's framed in a way that this is a part of the past that's regrettable. Um, and But we want to acknowledge it nonetheless. So I think there's different ways in which, depending on how it's done, that truth itself can can constitute a, a kind of accountability, even if it's different in form from the accountability you get in a criminal trial.
0: The book is Con- the conceptual foundations of transitional justice, and we've been joined today with by its author, Colleen Murphy. Colleen, thank you for joining us on New Books and Law podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Ian. I enjoyed our conversation.